standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Before I introduce my co-host and our special guest for this episode, we have a really good announcement to make. You know, one of the dreams of someone who produces and hosts a radio show is wider distribution. And we've been doing it online for a number of years. I have the Tech Night Out Live, which has been online since 2003. We were a podcast before there was such a thing as a podcast, really, about a year earlier than the podcast phenomenon started. The Paracast has been around since February of 2006. Now we're going to be syndicated. What that means is the show will still be available online, still be available for live streaming, still for on-demand streaming. When you click on the little player window on our sites, you'll be able to hear the show. You'll be able to download it to your iPod or even your Zoom player for those three or four of you who use Zoom players. But we will also be available on terrestrial radio. And if they pick us up, satellite radio as well the networking deal is going to start in about a month okay we'll have more information then but i wanted to give you a heads up and heads up we have three terrific people here our co-hosts now mention their names in alphabetical order because we don't want the egos to clash we don't normally don't have two co-hosts in the same episode we have paul kimball yay and we have chris o'brien and that's chris o'brien's beard by the way talking <laughs> I'm sorry about that. The devil made me do it. That's what good editing audio software is for. We can take out yeah. these uncomfortable pauses. Right. We take out the uncomfortable pauses, but leave out, you know, excessive pauses, bad words, but embarrassing statements. They stay right in, folks. Yeah. Especially that, mine. That's that, important. Absolutely. Our special guest, Kevin Randall, has been on the show before, but now he has a new book out called Crash. UFOs fall from the sky. Now, the obvious question of the elephant in the room, Kevin, is how much of this is about Roswell? Uh, not very much at all. Uh, Roswell, of course, is an important part of, of a discussion of UFO crashes, but it's covered so well in so many other arenas that what I've done here is just kind of updated the information I had about Roswell. Give some of the basics, of course and updated some of the information I had to bring it into 2010. But Roswell is not the big uh, story in the book. I think Kecksburg actually takes up more pages. So, so Roswell is covered, but it's not the majority of the book. Okay, so the publicity sheet that came from the agency that works with your publisher said, late-breaking information on the controversial Roswell UFO crash. What's the late-breaking information, Kevin? I think we're just looking at some of the, the new witnesses that have come out in the last few months. Look at some of the what people have been talking about. The real problem with the Roswell case at this point is it's so old now that the first-hand witnesses have pretty much died off. So we have very few new witnesses. One of the things that we did do is Carl Flock in his book had suggested that Frankie Rowe testimony could be rejected because he'd talked to three firefighters with the Roswell Fire Department, and they said, no, it didn't. They didn't go out on the run. It didn't happen. I had an opportunity to re-interview one of those guys. He was like 900 years old, a uh, crotchety old man. And he was giving me basically the same information he'd given Carl Flock until I asked him a specific question. I said, did you know Dan Dwyer, who was Frankie Rowe's father? And he said, yes. And then he said, he drove out to the crash site in his private car. 
So the reason you don't get any information about why the fire or, or information from the fire department about what they did when they went out there or making the run outside the city is Frankie Rose's father had gone out on his own. So here's a firefighter that that Carl had interviewed and said that he kind of rejects the, the Frankie Rowe testimony. And I, and I just wonder if Carl didn't ask the one question that I did that, that opened the whole door for me, which was, did he know Dan Dwyer? And he talked about a colonel who'd come out to the fire department, and I don't know why that's always a colonel. I couldn't be a major or a captain, but a colonel came out and said, you don't need to do anything. We've got this covered. Don't bother going out there. And then Dan Dwyer drove out in his, in his personal car. So that would be among the late-breaking new things, because I, I got that information like six months, a year ago, something about a year ago. Paul, you want to follow up with that because you've been skeptical of Roswell? No, I don't want to talk about Roswell at all. I, I sent Kevin an email to that effect. You didn't get that, Kevin? Oh, no, this is horrible. Um, well, I, and I didn't bring it up. So, no, so I'm, blame me. no, no, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> blaming you. Blame Gene. Okay, well, you, blame your PR people, guys, because the PR people made that the first bullet point. And I said, okay, this has got to be important. Yes, there's a small portion of material in the book, but let's emphasize that. You know what? Let's move away from Roswell, and then I'll ask well, you the let other question. Let me just say sure. one thing, one thing to, to kind, of, kind of ease Paul's mind. What this new information does is not necessarily move Roswell into the extraterrestrial. It merely suggests that Frankie Rowe was telling the truth that she knew it. So Frankie Rowe's not lying, but that doesn't mean what fell at Roswell was extraterrestrial. Let, let me ask you this question. I, as Kevin would know, I'm sure, because we're friends and we both have the same general weird sense of humor, I'm sure he knows I was more or less just joking. Emphasis on more. Let me ask you about Roswell, Kevin, but not Roswell. Let me ask you about another alleged crash that you talk about in your book, from the version of your book that I have, page 94 to 100, San Augustine, the uh, supposed crash on the plains of San Augustine. I've been there. I, I don't know why anybody would want to crash in San Augustine on the plains. So sort of desolate area. But assuming somebody did, as uh, Stan Friedman and a few others who still believe in the MJ-12 documents do, talk a bit about the crash at the plains, the alleged crash at the plains of San Augustine, what you think of it, because you talk about it at some length in your book, um, the search for reliable witnesses, the story, and also whether you're, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it or not, but Anthony Bregalia has written recently at uh, the UFO Iconoclast. I think it's the most recent post on their blog, ufocon.blogspot.com. He's tried to resurrect the San Augustine crash and say that um, there's plenty of credible witnesses and it, it did happen. So perhaps you can talk about the lesser known Roswell incident, as it were. The very first thing I would say is there are no witnesses to the San Augustine crash. There are secondhand testimonies, and all of them are traceable back to Barney Barnett. There is nothing that connects the Barnett, the alleged Barnett sighting, to the Roswell case of 1947. There's absolutely nothing. What we do know, and, and what is important here, uh, Gerald Anderson, who is who who appeared after the Unsolved Mysteries broadcast of, of the Roswell case, said that he had been on the plains of San Augustine, and he knew who the archaeologist was. It was this Dr. Buskirk. Well, we found Buskirk, who was inconveniently alive, and it turned out to be Anderson's high school anthropology teacher. And Buskirk says, no, 
in the summer of 1947, I was working on my Ph.D. thesis on, at the, at the um, Apache Indian Reservation, Mescalero Indian Reservation in Arizona. He didn't have time for what he called the archaeological sideshows. We also found out that Herbert Dick, who was a, um, another anthropologist, archaeologist, was doing a survey of Bat Cave, which is on the um, uh, eastern side of the plains of San Augustine. But in view of the area that, that Anderson said the thing crashed at, uh, Dick got there on July 1st. And he would have been, if, if anything had happened, like Anderson said, he would have been in a position to see it, and he didn't. We, we, we can now prove he was there on July 1st because we found the documentation for it. Barney Barnett's tale is told by Vern Maltese, who's a very nice man, and I've, I've talked to him repeatedly. Uh, Harold Baca, who lived near Barney Barnett in Socorro in the 1960s, a fellow named William Leeds, who apparently is a, a retired, I believe he's now a retired military officer, who talked to Barnett. And allegedly Barnett told him the story of a UFO crash at that time. But the problem is it's all secondhand. And the pro other problem is Ruth Barnett, Barney's wife, apparently kept a diary for one year. Somebody given her a daily reminder book, and she kept a diary religiously for a year of 1947. And in July of 1947, there's absolutely nothing in that diary to suggest that Barney Barnett was involved in any sort of spaceship retrieval. So where we are is, and the one thing they can't do is connect the Barnett tale to 1947. Harold Baca, who allegedly did this originally, I talked to, and when I talked to him, I could have got him to confess to any crime I wanted to because the guy was really old and had, had no real idea of when these events took place. So we have the Barnett tale sort of unanchored, floating around New Mexico at some point. The documentation available suggests that nothing happened on the plains of San Augustine. The Anderson testimony, we've caught Anderson, and I say this repeatedly in the hopes he'll sue me, uh, lied about it. There was that, that, that Anderson was not there. He uh, took the high school anthropology class, which he denies from, from Buskirk, which is how he knew an anthropologist named Buskirk. The description, and, and, and Anderson had been a, a police officer, and he, he put together a, a identikit sketch of Buskirk, which is really telling. Because in 1957, when Anderson would have known Buskirk, he was much heavier, had a much fuller face than the Buskirk of 1947. So if Anderson is describing Buskirk in 1947, uh, he, got the, he got the description wrong. It's clearly Buskirk in 1957. And, and a number of people who knew Buskirk recognized the sketch immediately. So where we are on San Augustine is there's no credible evidence anywhere that something happened in July of 1947. There is not a single first-hand witness to an event on the plains talking today with the exception of Gerald Anderson, who has spun so many tales we don't know where the truth lies with him. Yeah, and what you can say about Roswell, or the Corona incident, perhaps, as it might be better called, or whichever spot in the desert you want to pick. But almost everybody, in fact, I don't know anybody who disputes that something happened in, quote, quote, or around Roswell, um, whether it's the crashed alien spacecraft, whether it's Nick Redfern's idea of an experimental craft coming down, or whether it was Project Mogul, or a weather balloon, for that matter. Everybody, including the U.S. Air Force, admits that something 
was found, something happened, and then it's just a question of, well, okay, what was that something? But then you run into cases like the San Augustine claims where there's no evidence, credible evidence, that anything happened. You just have a story. And I think when you're looking through these tales of UFO crashes, whatever you think of them, it's important to separate the weed from the chaff and get rid of the chaff, i.e. the cases for which there's no real credible evidence or it's just one witness and it's unsupported, and then focus in as much as I sort of dislike the Roswell case for a lot of reasons, but at least focus in on those cases where you, you have something that everybody can agree on happened and then let's, okay, let's try and figure out what happened. There's one other thing I want to ask you about, Kevin, and then I guess uh, Gene or Chris might step in, and that is... Going back to the Majestic 12 stuff for a minute, because how can you ever get enough? It's been a while since we did Majestic 12, so why sure. not? Go ahead. The, what, what has always struck me is, as amusing is the MJ-12 documents, which Stan believes are valid, and he also believes the Roswell incident is valid, and he also believes the crash at San Augustine is valid. Yet the, the MJ-12 documents make no mention in this briefing document to Eisenhower of a crash on the plains of San Augustine. You would think they would mention both of them, not just one. But the MJ-12 documents do mention a crash in Del Rio. And you talk about that in your book. So leaving aside the contradictions of documents that don't mention San Augustine, let's talk a bit about the Del Rio crash or... Uh, you know what, folks, if you're listening, anytime I say crash because I'm too lazy to do it, I will put, assume alleged is in front of the word crash when I use it. So let Kevin talk about the Del Rio incident or crash a bit. But before he does that, I've got to remind our listeners. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. You're in the Paracast, two co-hosts for the price of one, <laughs> and you're not paying for the show, so you're getting a real bargain here. We have... Christopher O'Brien and Paul Kimball, our special guest, Kevin Randall, author of a new book, Crash, UFOs Fall from the Sky. We go back to the alleged crash in Del Rio in 1950, Kevin. Before, before we get to that, can I, can I just do, say one thing? Sure. I was arguing with Stan about the validity of MJ-12 at one point. 
and he said, send me a document that proves there was no crash on the plains of San Augustine. So I sent him a copy of the MJ-12 paper, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> That's why I like you, Kevin. It's your sense of humor. Um, and I'm pretty sure, having interviewed Stan and known him for 30 years, that he never really got the joke. But, uh, no, but I think it's didn't. funny. Yeah. He explained to me why it wasn't mentioned there, but that's a whole other argument. Okay, let's go to Del Rio. And this is an important case because our good friend Len Springfield, whom I'll be doing a tribute to at the MUFON conference in July, started us back on the road to crash retrievals. In fact, I think he originated the term crash retrieval. In his paper in 1978, the very first case he talked about was this Del Rio case. A retired officer, Colonel 06, which is the way we, we designate between colonels and lieutenant colonels in, in the modern army is uh, colonels are 06s and, and lieutenant colonels are 05s, did an affidavit attesting to the fact that he had been involved in this retrieval operation, which is why I accepted it at the beginning, because I could not believe that a high-ranking Air Force officer would make something like this up. Todd Zeckel, who was a UFO researcher of mediocre talent, and that might be generous, uh, had found this officer named Robert Willingham and interviewed him and got an affidavit attesting to what, what had happened about how he had been flying chase on a B-47 in a, in a fight, fighter planes and this thing had flashed across the sky and they, they flew down and saw that it had crashed and came back uh, a little bit later in a, a private plane and landed and talked to the Mexican authorities that were recovering it. So it's an interesting it's an interesting story, and here's a high-ranking officer signing an affidavit. Zeckel placed the date of, of Dece December 6, 1950, because there was some events that took place, documented events of some kind of an alert that took place in the United States on, on December 6, 1950. So he's trying to tie all of this together. So I'm putting together the book Crash, and I'm thinking, well, gee, I, I haven't really looked at this Del Rio case. Uh, for quite a while, maybe I should see what's available about it on the Internet, which is a wonderful research tool if you understand that not everything on the Internet is true. And so I just typed in Del Rio UFO crash and learned that there had been a book written about this. Willingham had been the main focus of this book, and the date was no longer 1950, but was in fact 1954. That's kind of odd. The aircraft that Willingham was flying changed from, from uh, I think it was F-94s in... Uh, in the first version to another aircraft, and, and the airbase that he'd flown out of Dias had changed because Dias hadn't existed in, at the time. So there were all these changes, and this got to me wondering about the credibility of this case. Noah Torres and Ruben Uarte are the authors of that book, and I've been in communication with both of them. I've met, met Ruben at the convention at MUFON last year. Very nice guys, but they believed Willingham was telling them the truth. And I said, well, do you have any documentation? that he was an Air Force officer, and they sent me a photograph of him in an Air Force uniform and, and, and some documents. And I looked at that, and I wrote back, and I said, you know, he's in a Civil Air Patrol uniform, not, not Air Force. Civil Air Patrol is a civilian auxiliary of the Air Force, volunteer organization. They do search and rescues. Wonderful organization, but it's not being in the Air Force. And so I wrote to St. Louis to get a copy of Willingham's record to verify that he'd been a high-ranking officer, and discovered that he joined the Army in December of 1945, which technically makes him a, a veteran of World War II, and he'd been discharged in 1947, and that's the only record they had. Nothing about him being an officer, nothing, nothing like that at all. So I requested more information and, and um, 
uh, Noah Torrey sent me a lot of a lot of documentation, but it was all Civil Air Patrol. Nothing to suggest he'd been in Air Force office. So now we've got a problem. We've got this wonderful story of Del Rio. So I called Willingham and talked to him, and he said, well, he didn't remember the exact date. It might have been 1954, or 1955, or 1957. He just knew it wasn't 1950 because he'd been in Korea at the time. No evidence of that either. But I'd heard that, that the story came about from a newspaper article that, that Todd Zeckel had found. It, it had been published in 1968 in a small newspaper in, in Pennsylvania. A copy of the clipping had been sent to NICAP headquarters in Washington, D.C., and that was how Zeckel found out about it, and he got to Willingham that way. So I started looking for that article, which I never did find. But I did find in Skylook, which was the precursor to the MUFON Journal, an article from, from I think it's the February-March or March-April issue. I forget which one, but it's that 1968. And here's the story told by Willingham in 1968. So the event didn't take place in 1950 or 54 or 55 or 56, according to Willingham. In the original article, it took place in 1948. There were three objects involved, not one, and he was flying an F-94, an aircraft that didn't even exist in 1948, according, according to all the documentation. So this really stunned me. Uh, they have sent me pictures of Willingham in uniform, Clearly, it's not Air Force, it's Civil Air Patrol. You can tell this because the guy's wearing CAP ribbons on the uniform with his military ribbons that he earned while he was in the Army, which is authorized on the Civil Air Patrol uniform, but not on an Air Force uniform. But the most important point is he had taken off the distinctive signia off, off the lapel, where it would say CAP, if it was Civil Air Patrol or U.S., whether it was Air Force. That's missing. So clearly... The pictures were taken, and he took off those insignia so we wouldn't realize that he was in a Civil Air Patrol uniform. No evidence. Now, that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Why would he do that? So, so he, here's a picture of him taken in the 1960s, to, or the late, late 60s, early 70s, to show him in uniform, and it looks good, but it's clearly a Civil Air Patrol uniform. So he's, he's engaged in this deceit. Uh, who he is and what he was. He was clearly a Civil Air Patrol officer. Now, I've since had communication with uh, St. Louis, and the guy has tried to convince him he was due a pension. I, I, I think it's because he believed somehow that years in the Civil Air Patrol translated to years in the Air Force, and therefore he was due a pension, but that's not true. What I don't know, I think, I think some people can earn retirement points for participating in Air Force or in Civil Air Patrol activities on the senior level, but that does not count toward a good year for retirement. Retirement other than you get one point for this one participation, which works out to uh, 50 cents a retirement point when you add them all up. Here's what I find interesting about the Del Rio thing versus San Augustine versus MJ-12, and this is sort of why I asked about it. The Del Rio case existed in the public knowledge prior to the creation, wherever they were created, of the MJ-12 documents, correct? Yes. In, in fact, I can, I can go a little bit further than that. Zeckel wanted to write a book about Del Rio about the same time that Bill Moore was writing the uh, Roswell incident. There is a mention of the Del Rio crash in the Roswell incident. It just mentions it briefly and that Todd Zeckel has been looking into it. That's so right. That when yeah. the MJ-12 document appears, we've got a paragraph about the Del Rio case, which clearly 
is a hoax. So the question then becomes, if Del Rio is a hoax, what's it doing in the Eisenhower briefing document? And doesn't this suggest the briefing document is also a hoax? One more proof that it's a hoax. Yeah, I've always thought of all the things in there, um, even worse than the Donald Menzel inclusion, which Stan went a far, you know, quite a ways to, if not proving, um, at least showing that Menzel did have a, you know, quite a secret life and a high security clearance. So maybe you could jump that hurdle. But the one that I, that I don't think anybody with any objectivity could get across get over is the non-inclusion of San Augustine and the inclusion of Del Rio, which, as you say, is clearly not accurate, not true. We can go one step further now because there's an awful lot of people, and in the book I talk about Aztec, and gee, I hate to talk about all the hoaxes, talk about some of the interesting stuff, but, but I talk about the Aztec case in the book as well, and it was my conclusion then that it's a hoax. Now, I understand Scott Ramsey has done a lot of research in Aztec, and he's now convinced that he's got the evidence to prove that Aztec was real. If that's the case, and, it's, and Aztec is 1948, then it too should be in the Eisenhower briefing paper, and it is not. So uh, no get, matter how you slice it, you, you've got a lot of trouble with that briefing paper. I got news for you, Kevin. Scott Ramsey was convinced that the Aztec case was real before he actually started researching the Aztec case. That's that's my take on it, and that's, that's all I'm going to say I about have, Aztec. Um, I was on a, a program several months ago and mentioned the Aztec case and I thought it was a hoax and they were wanting me to come on and debate Scott Ramsey and I pointed out well it's not fair because I don't know what Ramsey has in the way of evidence I know what where we are in today's world on Aztec but I don't know what he may be presenting to suggest that Aztec is real and until I can see that evidence it, it doesn't seem like it would be a fair thing to debate him about it I'd be I'd be at a disadvantage because I would not have access to the information he currently has. Now, I know I know Stan now is convinced Aztec is real. Yeah, but Stan's convinced that everything's real. And I say that with the greatest affection I can muster, but, you know, when you've crossed the Rubicon of being convinced that the MJ-12 documents are real against all evidence that they're not, and then you start latching on to things like the Flatwoods Monster case and the Aztec case, and all of a sudden... It seems like virtually anything that falls from the sky is, is an extraterrestrial spacecraft that crashes. And you have to ask, well, why is this researcher still viewed as credible then? You're getting dangerously close to exopolitics territory at that point, where you seem to be accepting almost any story that comes in, even though in the case of Aztec, I call it ufology's Dracula. I mean, J.P. Kahn stuck a stake in that thing over 50 years ago, and it so every now and then, Bill Steinman in the 80s, Scott Ramsey in the 90s, and, and in this decade, somebody comes along and pulls the stake out. And the vampire comes up and, and rah, rampages through ufology for a bit, and then somebody stakes it again with the same stake that was in it before. And so my question would be, how, how long does ufology let this go on before people just sort of throw their hands up and say, you know what, um, this is crazy? So, Kevin, how long do we let this go on before we call it what it is? Crazy. The problem, I think, is that in ufology, we kind of recycle the people every five to seven years. And so with, with a few of us geezers running around, and Stan would be the leading geezer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I'm not far behind in my geezerdom. And in fact, I, my wife took a picture of the speaker's panel 
at the MUFON conference last year, and it was basically a whole bunch of geezers. Uh, I don't think there was anybody with dark hair on the panel, with the exception of Jim Carrion, who was the international director at the time. But other than us, people rediscover ufology, and so they look this stuff up, and they find the Aztec case, which sounds good when, it, when you begin looking at it, because here is all this suggested evidence and scientific investigation of it and military recovery of it so that uh, it looks good but as they continue their interest they begin to find find the problem so i'm pretty sure we're going to stick the stake in the aztec case once again but that's really the problem with ufology is we do not seem to discriminate at all a case will be answered and then somebody will say well no not really Thomas Mantell chased a, a balloon. There is no question in my mind that's what happened. Mantell was the um, National Guard pilot who was killed chasing a UFO in Kentucky in 1948. I am convinced he was killed chasing a balloon based on the Air Force file and the study that I did of it 15 years ago in learning everything I could about hypoxia and anoxia and Mantell's background as a World War II transport pilot, which means he was not used to the problems with oxygen deprivation at altitudes and all of this stuff, and yet we're back, uh, well, no, we're not sure that he chased a balloon. It may have been something else. And, and so we go through it over and over again. And that's where we in ufology begin to lose our credibility because we never give anything up. It always comes back to haunt us. So I, I don't know how big of a stake you have to drive through some of these cases to end it, but we just never seem to get that done. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free. 30-day trial. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Kevin D. Randall. He's author of a new book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. Co-hosts are Chris O'Brien and Paul Kimball. And the point being mentioned here that even if you go back to the 1950s and the original books by Major Donald Kehoe, he was touting the Mantell case. And I don't think Kehoe ever backtracked. Did Kehoe ever backtrack on that? To be fair to Kehoe on Mantell, he did not have access to the Air Force files, which we all do today. He made, he made a couple of assumptions that were wrong, cutting the times when the object was seen in various Kentucky towns, measuring the distance between them and saying, okay, it had to be traveling at, I think he said something like 210 miles an hour, well, a balloon wouldn't travel that fast. But what he did not really look at is the direction of the sighting and how high the thing could have been. So you, in essence, could have had simultaneous sightings in these two towns because of the altitude the thing was at. There's a drawing in the Project Blue Book files by one of the witnesses 
and it looks for all the world like a, a skyhook balloon in, in the drawing. And I mean, that's, that's really kind of a giveaway. And the thing hangs in the sky forever and a week. Mantell had no chance getting to it. But to be fair to Kehoe, he didn't have access to all this information that we have today. I'm not sure what, what Kehoe would have done with it. I also know that the Air Force went after Kehoe. In the Leveland case from 1957, where the object was seen close to the ground, it interacted with the environment, it stalled car engines, uh, Kehoe had said there were nine witnesses at nine separate locations. The Air Force, in essence, called Kehoe Alliance, and now there's only three. And I went back to look at all of this stuff, and using the Air Force files and other information, I was able to locate witnesses at 13 separate locations. So, yeah, Kehoe was wrong. But he underestimated the Air Force was wrong, and they flat lied about it because they knew about these other witnesses. But what they, but a witness does not exist in the Air Force mindset at the time unless an Air Force person had talked to them. So even though they might have known a witness's name, the fact they didn't talk to him made them a non-witness. So Kehoe, I think, operating in the 1950s and what was going on was was straightforward and honest. Going back to Roswell for just a second, Kevin, we have a. Um and, and maybe this could be our concluding thing, or maybe Chris wants to come back at it from a different angle. But for me, there's a guy on the Paracast forums, um, tag name Zylo, and he writes in a thread saying um, about this show, you know, hey, guys, if you have any questions for Kevin, what are they? And he writes, I would like to hear Mr. Randall's response to the following. Is Roswell still a pertinent case within ufology? If so, why? And we just talked about staking all of these other cases. So is Roswell still pertinent, Kevin? Why? And hasn't it been staked, too? And if it hasn't, tell no, me why. Absolutely not. The Mogul answer, and I think anybody who looks at the Mogul answer honestly will say it doesn't work. And, and why doesn't it work? Well, A, Charles Moore and the boys, the Mogul boys, went to Roswell and asked for their help chasing the balloons. So the guys at Roswell knew the balloons were out there floating around. The Mogul boys were required to issue notams, notice to airmen when they launched the balloon, so the air, airmen flying around would know these big, huge aerial uh, obstacles were out there floating around. The name Mogul, contrary to what Charles Moore said, was known by the Mogul team in 19, the 1940s. And in fact, if you look at Dr. Crary's diary, Crary being the, the chief of, of Mogul, he uses the term Mogul in his diary a couple of times. So they're, 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 the mobile explanation simply does not work. That doesn't mean it was extraterrestrial. For me, what takes us to the extraterrestrial is my conversation with Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal at Roswell in 1947. And, and I asked him if we were following the right path. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, we think it's extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path. Not to mention that every member of Colonel Blanchard's staff, Blanchard being the commander of the 509th Bomb Group at Roswell at the time, every member of the staff that we talked to, with a single exception, said that it was an alien spacecraft. It was extraterrestrial. Like Jesse Marcel, Joe Briley, uh, Edwin Easley, uh, Patrick Saunders, just to name a few of the officers, and many of them retiring at, at very high rank talked about it being extraterrestrial. Roswell is the big gorilla in the room. The other thing that, that really interests me about the Roswell case is you have on July 8th the Air Force, or the, the, the guys at Roswell saying, we've got a flying saucer. The next day, you get headlines around the country say the Army and Navy moved today to suppress stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. Why on July 9th did they care when they hadn't cared 
from the point of Kenneth Arnold sighting some two weeks earlier, you've got all kinds of stories and speculations about what the flying saucers are until July 9th when they, when they move to start, start suppressing them. That suggests something very unusual happened at Roswell. Can this move us to the extraterrestrial? Not really. Because all we have is the testimony of the people suggesting it. We don't have the documentation that would prove it. We don't have the physical evidence that would prove it. We have the testimony of the reliable people who didn't lie to us repeatedly, like Gerald Anderson and Frank Kaufman and, and, and many others. But we have some very reliable information that takes us in that direction. So it's the big gorilla in the room. Somebody asked the other day on one of the forums, why, can't, why don't you guys talk about something happening today? And I said, well, that's a very good question. Let's see what's going on today. And the sightings today just don't seem to be quite as exciting as they were back then. <laughs> and, and Carl Flock and I actually talked about this a couple of times. It's like the guys came down from outer space. They, they gathered their information. They gathered their data, and they went home. And they've only shown up periodically since in, in very small numbers, not in like, well, we went to the moon walked about on it you know, from 1969 to, what, 72, and we really haven't been back since then except for some uh, probes and things like that. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. But Roswell is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and if you're going to talk about UFOs, you have to at least address Roswell quickly, which we have not done here, by the way. Well, that also raises the other question before Chris chimes in, and that is if you find a way to dismiss Roswell for whatever reason. Roswell wasn't quite what we thought it was. It was a secret weapon. It was balloons, whatever it was. It wasn't E.T. or crypto-terrestrials. That doesn't end the UFO enigma, and that's also unfortunate, too. We can't use Roswell as the linchpin for UFO research. I, I guess it's kind of like they, when they talk about terrorist activities, they say, you know, we can stop a 100. They only have to be successful once. Um, and, and it's kind of that way with, with, with the UFO phenomenon. Uh, we can look at a lot of different cases, but it only takes one to prove that there has been visitation. And even Carl Sagan, I think, said that we, would, we could expect a visitation once every 10,000 years. And my question had always been, well, when do you start counting the 10,000 years? And if you're an alien civilization that has the capability of traveling in their stellar distances, and you find the beginnings of a civilization, wherever we happen to be in our uh, societal evolution, uh, whether it's the Egyptians building the pyramids, uh, the Romans, the, the Syrians, uh, the Babylonians, the Industrial Revolution, the Middle Ages, wherever you find the civilization. Oh, let, don't let, me, let me not forget the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas. But if you found a civilization on Earth that was obviously involved intelligent beings, wouldn't that induce you to come back more frequently to see how they're progressing or see what they're doing? So once our civilization is discovered by the aliens, I would think they would come back more frequently than the once in every 10,000 years. So no, if, even if Roswell turns out to be something mundane, and, and I don't think there's been an explanation offered yet that would cover all the evidences that we have for Roswell, they, they all are lacking some, and, and as I say, we, we don't really have the physical evidence to prove it being extraterrestrial. But even, even if we found that answer, it, it would not explain the McMinnville pictures, it would not explain the Leveland sightings, it would not explain 
uh, the Great Falls, Montana movie. It wouldn't explain a lot of different things. It wouldn't explain um, Shanghai, the Shag Harbor incident from 1967. It, it just wouldn't explain those sorts of things. Chris? Yeah, I've, I've been slowly perusing through Joseph Farrell's new book called Roswell and the Reich, and since we're on this subject that uh, I have problems with, I tend to break out in, in like this weird kind of rash. I, I I need to get calamine lotion sometimes to, to like put it on myself when we're talking about Roswell. As some people who know or are aware of my thinking out there are aware, I, I have always had problems with the Roswell uh, case. I do appreciate creative thinking, though, and uh, Joseph Farrell's new book, uh, Roswell and the Reich, <laughs> raises some pretty interesting hypotheses that we may have been dealing in terms of that case with something highly terrestrial and possibly uh, of German origin. Uh, Kevin, have you looked into this particular angle, and uh, do you feel that it holds water? I haven't looked at it in any great depth, simply because I haven't been convinced. I, I, thought, the, I thought the Nazis were pretty well destroyed at the end of the Second World War. I, I, would argue, I would argue that if they had a weapon that could do what the UFOs allegedly could do, they would have deployed it. But then again, I can say, well, you know, they had the jet fighters and, and Hitler used them completely wrong. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't really utilize the weapon that he had that could have really torn up the 8th Air Force and the strategic bombing of, of Nazi Germany when he had the opportunity to do so. So that argument may, may not work. I, I just noticed the book out and I haven't really looked at it. So it's, it's really not fair for me to comment on it, I guess. Yeah, I do. I do urge you to uh, to you know, at least at some point uh, take a look at it. There's some pretty, he raises some pretty interesting points, and and also he uh, is a very good researcher. And I do recommend uh, for you Roswell fans out there, um, and also uh, uh, Nick Redfern's uh, book. Uh, I think Nick's theory had quite a number of holes in it, but I appreciate creative thinking uh, in this field, and I don't think we have enough of it. And Someone like a Len Stringfield, for instance, I think any time you talk about UFO crashes, uh, you, you need to look at the work that Leonard did uh, for many years. Uh, the Situation Red, I think, is a, is a must-read for anybody who's interested in, in uh, this subject. What do you think of Len's work uh, in general? As I said, in, in Denver, at the end of July, I'll be doing a tribute to Len Stringfield, looking at some of what he'd, he'd done, talking about his UFO sighting over at Iwo Jima at the end of the Second World War. And what I always appreciate about Len's work was that he gathered the information, he did some analysis of it, what he thought was good and bad about it, but he, but he published a number of status reports on crash retrievals and threw the information out there and said, you know, I don't have time to look at all of this. Here's what I've been told. Maybe it'll be of benefit to somebody else. Maybe someone else can... can uh, uh, follow up on this and get to the end. And, and that was what's important about the Del Rio crash is that was the, the lead-off uh, case in his uh, 1978 paper. In his, I think his first status report, he talked about uh, some additional information and, and suggested he just found it really hard to believe because the date had changed so many times in, in some of these things. And now we were able to take it to, to its, its conclusion that it's all based on a single witness who is not reliable. So lens work, lens work is very important, especially when you're talking about crash retrievals, because had Len not presented the 1978 paper and then 
followed up with his status reports, I don't think many of us would be talking about crash retrieval. It would, no. it, it would have died. And I remember when I saw the, the Roswell incident book the first time, I said, well, here's the Aztec case repackaged and, and didn't want a thing to do with it because that's what struck me. But Glenn directed us to the crash retrieval stories and said, you know, uh, these are interesting to me. They may not be true. This one's single witness. This one I can't tell you who the guy is, but he seems to be credible. So Land provided us with an awful lot of the, the foundations for research into other areas of crash retrieval. So Land's work in that respect was extremely important. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. What's extremely important, by the way, is that we have Kevin D. Randall author of a new book called Crash that explores these crash retrieval incidents. And we're looking not just at the stuff that may pass muster, but the stuff that maybe we can discard and move on. Our co-host, Paul Kimball, Chris O'Brien. Chris, you wanted to follow up. Yeah, I, I, I'm very curious uh, as to your favorite and in uh, and the cases that you feel uh, hold the, the most water in terms of your long uh, years in the field and, and you know, obviously the extensive research that you've done in the subject. What are your favorite cases and which ones do you feel are the are the, the ones that are most likely to be real? Well, you can say what are my favorite cases and what are most, most real. I really like the Del Real case because we were able to take that thing to its end. And here's right. an explanation and here's where we go. So I kind of, I really kind of like that case, even though it does nothing to suggest there have been real UFO crashes. I think Shag Harbor is extremely important because here is, here is a, a case where the object is seen in the sky, there's a photograph of it in the sky, and there's documentation that suggests of what, what the, um, the Canadian government, the American government, and even the Soviets uh, did during, during that event in 1967. What is also very interesting is the Air Force had decided to, to investigate UFO, get a, get a university to investigate UFOs so they could end Project Blue Book. And the documentation proves that was their mission to end Blue Book, end it now. And, and Shang Harbor takes place during this University of Colorado study. So here's the perfect opportunity for these guys to investigate a case that has all the elements you could expect, all the chains of evidence you could want to suggest something is going on. And they make a phone call to Canada and, and, and discover that a couple of the initial witnesses were teenagers. And they say, well, there's nothing to it. Yeah, we're, not, we're not interested. Well, Chris... Styles and Don Ledger picked up the reins in the in the 1990s and were able to find some very interesting documentation. Clearly, something fell into the water of Shanghai Harbor. Clearly, it was there for a, a week. Clearly.
clearly it interacted with the environment. Clearly the American government got involved. Clearly the Soviet got involved. And then the object or an object and another one disappeared, taking, taking off somehow. So here's a, here's a case that's very, very good and, and maybe better than Roswell simply because of the documentation available for it. Now, some of the things that you've talked about there, Kevin, are absolutely accurate in the sense that you have identifiable witnesses that you can attach names and faces to. I've met some of them down in Shag Harbor and that area. There's other elements to that story where the witnesses remain anonymous, uh, particularly the part about the, the being joined by another underwater craft and then both of them traveling to the Gulf of Maine and flying away. Not to say that it didn't happen, but we profiled that case in my film, Best Evidence, and it, there's kind of a dividing line between the stuff, like a lot of these cases, where you can say, yes, that absolutely happened. We have documentation. We have verifiable witnesses. Fine. And then there's the stuff that may have happened. You have anonymous witnesses. You have people that don't want to go on the record but tell you a story, say they were there as divers or whatever. And the trick is, how far do you want to take the conclusions you can draw from that um, do you take it just to the point of, here's what we have that we can verify, stop? Or do you say, well, okay, let's bring in this anonymous stuff and perhaps unverifiable stuff but still interesting and draw a tentative conclusion from that, um, which is about as far as I'd ever be willing to go. But um, but I think you're right. The Shag case is very interesting. What has always struck me as most interesting about it Besides the name Shag Harbor, uh, which I find amusing, I, I once was speaking at a conference at the Integratron in uh, in Landers, California, and I said, "If only you could get the folks from Dildo, Newfoundland, to visit Shag Harbor, <laughs> you would you would have a really really cool party." But, and then you have um, people come in from Intercourse, Pennsylvania. Exactly, yeah, and Hearts Content Newfoundland and all oh, those other man, places. Oh, these guys have gone into a horrible tangent. <laughs> True, but I'm going to pull us back out now. That's what I do. I, I pull in, but then I pull out. Wait, no. That's this is the fun. tangent show, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Well, Welcome to tangent. Remember, we're going on traditional radio soon, so we have to be careful about this, but you don't want to be well, like Howard Stern. Well, wait a minute. Howard Stern gets $500 million a year. Maybe we do. So yeah. I cannot say, then, that this whole affair was be, be catered by In-N-Out Burger. Perfect. Yeah. I love the In-N-Out Burger, yeah. Those are all real names. It's, the, it's like you should do a show, the fun you can have with real place names. But the thing about Shag Harbor, as opposed to Dildo, Newfoundland, is the witnesses, when they saw the object from the sky come down, thought it was a plane crash, and they reported it as such in most cases. It was the military that classified it as an unidentified flying object, which doesn't mean an extraterrestrial spacecraft. It just means... A UFO, something that was unexplained. And as Don Ledger has pointed out a number of times to me, he said, as far as he knows, that's the only time that that's ever happened. Usually it's the other way around. The witnesses call it a UFO, and the Air Force wanders in and says, well, here's what it was. And in this case, you had something completely opposite. The witnesses offering an explanation, and the Air Force saying, no. <laughs> it's unidentified. Well, there is another. There is another precedent for that. Uh, of course, you have the 1994 NORAD phone call to the Rio Grande County Sheriff in South Central Colorado, reporting what uh, they claimed was some unusual fire, and uh, you have witnesses that claim that an object went down in the area that NORAD had given in terms of coordinates to the county sheriff. So that you have one that's similar in that regard. They're reporting something, a heat source that's unusual. 
which then witnesses come forward unbeknownst to uh, to them that Norad had made the call. Uh, they come forward and report what uh, appears to be a UFO. So actually a, a flotilla of them. But but that's a very good point. I think the fact that uh, you do have such uh, a turnaround from your basic your basic scenario in terms of the military actually being the ones that are labeling this event, uh, I think that is very important. And, and you make a good point there, Paul. It's also very interesting where the Shag Harbor case occurred. Um, and I know this because I filmed a feature film there two years ago, which was really cool. Shag Harbor is about, I think, 20 or 25 miles down the coast from what used to be, they call it now Government Point. There's a feature film studio there now. They took the old military base and turned it into a film studio. Wonderful expenditure of our provincial tax dollars here. But it used to be a top-secret American, they, I believe they leased the base from the Canadian government, or there were Canadian personnel there and American personnel. But the gist of it is they were, it was a top secret listening post for Soviet submarines in the North Atlantic. And that, the Shag Harbor UFO, when it went into the water, then allegedly traveled up and sat off government point along with a small flotilla of Canadian and American naval vessels until it was joined by this other underwater craft and then traveled away and flew away. But that strikes me as interesting that it would sort of land or, say, descend into the water and then sit off the coast from a very, very secret military installation. It doesn't mean it's extraterrestrial, but again, it adds an extra, a, a little extra veneer of interest to the story that I think a lot of these crash cases don't really have. Why, as I said before, anybody would want to crash. I guess you don't get to choose where you crash, but the plains of San Augustine, Aztec, there's nothing really going on there. But here you have a case where there is something going on. There is a military base um, of some importance, and this, this object sort of crashes or, or enters the water there. I find that interesting. Not conclusive, it, just interesting. We can, we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing with the Las Vegas crash in 1962. We have the, the object seen sort of exploding in the sky over Las Vegas. Dozens of witnesses in Las Vegas see this thing. It's, it's tracked on radar. They actually scramble fighters to, to intercept this thing. And uh, the, once the thing is seen to explode in the sky, they send out uh, the, the Clark County, Las Vegas being in Clark County, Nevada, a rescue team, and they get up to the fences for the Nellis gunnery ranges and have to stop because now they're, they're about to trespass on U.S. Air Force property. So here's the Area 51. <laughs> well, Area 51 is, is to the north, far to the northwest of, of where this happened. This was okay. out toward Mesquite on the Utah border. So it's on the other, other side of the state, but, but the Nellis, Nellis takes up an awful lot of uh, southern Nevada for their gunnery ranges and, and the red flag exercises and that sort of thing. But the, but the point simply is, here's, here's a case where we have a report of a UFO crash and it may have fallen on an Air Force installation. Well, and the other interesting thing, the use of the term crash, the other interesting thing about Shag Harbor is if you accept some of these things like the one you just talked about or Roswell or Aztec, if they happen, those would have been crashes. And one of the criticisms often raised by people, myself included, is A, if they can get from there to here, they seem pretty clumsy to be crashing their spaceships all over the place. And B, if they do crash their spaceships all over the place, they seem even more clumsy by not retrieving the materials using their advanced alien technology before we can get our paws on them. But Shag Harbor, you could view Shag Harbor not as a crash, but as a controlled entry into the water and then a surveillance operation. 
of a particular military installation. What you have there, a couple of things. One, it, it might not be. In fact, I would say it isn't a crash if you view it as a UFO, if you want to take the extraterrestrial thing. Um, not a crash, but a controlled entry. And two, basically doing underwater what ET supporters would say the aliens are doing above us in the skies, which is surveilling our planet um, for various reasons. So I, I would set the Shag Harbor incident aside from the term crash and view it more as potentially a crash, but also possibly not a crash at all, but some just a, a UFO entering the water that happened to be viewed doing so by witnesses. Well, one of the things you say is one of the reasons I did the book was because I was looking at the lists of UFO crashes that you can see on the uh, Internet. Some of the lists are approaching 300 or the top 300, and if you break it out, you know, they're, they're just falling out of the sky with such regularity. And that was something that struck me as well, that they just uh, they, they can conquer interstellar space, but once they hit an atmosphere, they crash. It, this makes no sense to me. Well, they, they can't handle radar, Kevin. Uh, radar takes uh, brings them down. That's the popular theory. <laughs> or they are built by the lowest bidder. You know, it's just like the politics here on Earth. You know, look, look at the BP incident. We can figure out how to drill for oil 5,000 feet below the surface of the ocean, but if something goes wrong, we can't fix it. Right. That has nothing to do with interstellar flight, which is a very, very complex, technologically advanced proposition. Getting across interstellar space requires a high level of technical ability to do so. Yes, Maybe but Kevin, let me interrupt you here. We can assume, even for the sake of argument, let's say there are interstellar craft coming here. But the craft that we see in our atmosphere may not be that. It might be satellite ships. There's a mothership on the moon, the backside of the moon or something, and they use lower-grade, lower-level craft to explore here. They're not using their full-size spaceships. But my point is simply this. There's way too many stories of crashes. Yeah. And so Paul is right on that respect. There's way too many stories. Let's look at where we are today. And the numbers. In the book, we start with a, a, an event in France in 840 A.D. I'm not sure what, what that is, but I really don't think it's an alien spacecraft involved there. But, but it's been presented as such in a lot of different books. So let's take a look at that. There was another one not long after that that's clearly ball lightning. There's a number of crashes that are clearly bolides. On my blog, one of the video bars... They rotate through different things. If you put a video bar on a blog, and, and uh, it rotates through different different things that you use keywords for, like UFOs and flying saucers. And I put one up for meteorites. And there's a compilation of meteor falls. Somebody's put together three minutes and 19 seconds of bolides from around the world. And what struck me looking at this is that this, when you look at these things begin to break up, it looks all, for all the world like a lighted cockpit and the windows of a craft as it's coming down. Clearly these are meteorites, clearly these are bolides, but if somebody catches a view of that in the night sky and just sees it for a split second, they're going to think something fell out of the sky. And I think some of the UFO crashes that we talk about today are bolides. So one of the things I, I did, there was a show on called Meteorite Man on the Science Channel, and that was how I got off on this thing, is because they showed some of those, so I started looking for it. And when we get a, when we get a UFO crash we, that, that sounds like that, we've got to start looking to see if there's, if there's a meteor fall that relates to that event at that time. 
the other thing is the Needles, California crash in 2008 that George Knapp investigated. Clearly something fell. Clearly the military got there within 20 minutes with a half a dozen helicopters, retrieved it, and took it away. Now, Knapp doesn't believe, nor do I believe, that it was extraterrestrial. It was obviously some kind of an experimental craft that got away from Area 51 or, or one of the experimental ranges because the, the military got there so fast. I'll tell you what, we're about to split for our hourly break, and then we can pick up on this and a lot of other case histories, both real and maybe fanciful. We have Kevin Randall. The new book is called Crash. Co-hosts are Christopher O'Brien and Paul Kimball. More on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Kevin Randall, author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. We have a pair of co-hosts, Paul Kimball and Christopher O'Brien, because we're dealing with a giant in the UFO field. Dr. Randall, I wanted to just have you briefly summarize further with the Needle case, Needles, California, before we go into other instances. Go ahead, please. Well, the, the, the point with the Needles, California case is clearly something fell from the sky. Clearly, it was retrieved. They, they, they showed up with helicopters, uh, a Sikorsky Sky Crane, I believe, and they retrieved the thing, fell, fell in the middle of the night, and it's gone. Witnesses on the ground see the thing fall, hear it fall, see the results of the fall. So we're dealing there, I think, with a governmental project of some kind. It's not extraterrestrial, it's freshly based. And yet we see the Needles California case show up on some of the UFO crash lists. Well, this is something that should be removed. There are other cases like that where it's clearly meteoric in origin, or there's other natural phenomena that explains it. But there are some cases that are very interesting that uh, are, are basically single witness. And I think here of the Cape Gerardo case from 1941, the woman who has come forward with that is Charlotte Mann, and it was her grandfather, I believe, who talked about giving last rites to these alien creatures. He was called out in the middle of the night to a scene of a, some kind of an accident, and there were little people involved, little humanoid creatures involved that he gave the last rites to. And, and, and man was never sure whether one had survived for a short period of time or if all of them were dead. But this was kind of a family tradition. The problem is none of the people we could talk to today, Charlotte Mann, is at best a second-hand witness and maybe even further removed from the case. Her sister confirms that the family did talk about this thing in the past. There are other people in the Cape Girardeau area who remember people talking about this. Uh, one of them is the, the brother of the sheriff at the time, remembers something about this. But what always has bothered me about the Cape Girardeau case is if this was truly extraterrestrial, it means that the military was involved in a retrieval in 1941, so their reaction in Roswell would have been different in 1947. They would have been 
aware that these things happened, it may be a very few people knew about it, but they would have done a better job of containing the Roswell case in 1947 had Cape Girardeau been extraterrestrial in origin, and yet, it, you know, it's an intriguing case with some very interesting uh, directions to follow up. One thing that I guess we should continue to mention here, of the other cases you cover in your book, any other so-called major crashes are really due to some kind of more conventional, mundane cause? There is one, and I, and I, and I hesitate to bring it up only because... I know the researcher, and I, and I really haven't had a chance to talk to him about this yet, but Jim Clarkson has been investigating a case, I think from 1978 in Washington, and the more I look at that case, the more it seems to be meteoric in origin. The intriguing part of the case, however, is according to witnesses, there was a, a large military presence, and he talks about them possibly being a National Guard unit from Georgia which brings out all kinds of ancillary problems, including posse comentatus, which is in, in, I guess, the United States, the military cannot be used for law enforcement purposes except for, for two things, by presidential direction or drug enforcement, which means if we have Georgia National Guard in Washington State blocking roads, as, as people said, we, we've got a clear violation of posse comentatus. And, and it's pretty clear that, that they were guarding, guarding the roads. The question that needs to be asked is, was the Georgia National Guard there on some kind of a training mission, and the people ran into them by accident or co coincidentally right after this thing was seen to fall? I know that the Iowa National Guard, one of the things they do is look for other states to go to train because it gives you an opportunity to deal with an environment that is uh, new to you and presents problems that you may not face in your home environment. So it teaches you to to be uh, 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 to respond to the unexpected. So the fact that you've got Georgia National Guard in Washington training isn't that unusual. If they are in fact guarding the roads and turning people back from a crash site, well, that's a violation of of numerous laws. So it, it's an interesting case. But I'm beginning to think that the explanation for that case may be meteoric. And, and I really, and the only reason I hesitate to say anything now is because I wanted to discuss it with Jim Clarkson because he's done an awful lot of work on this case over the last 20 years. We have a question from another uh, member of the Paracast forums, Kevin, a fellow named, well, I'm sure he's not named this unless his parents are terribly strange, Blowfish, which would be a very strange name to give your kid. Actually, it's Blofeld. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's perfectly understandable. He's from Australia, and he says, Good day, Gene, Paul, and Kevin. And that's all I'm going to do for an Australian accent. But he says, Mr. Kevin Randall, what's the biggest UFO hoax? And I don't think he's talking about just crashes. So let's broaden it out a bit here. What's the biggest UFO hoax you have come across? And let me suggest one to you, Kevin, that you've written about recently and see if this is your number one hoax. The alien autopsy film. Uh, maybe alien abductions qualify too. But is the alien autopsy film the biggest UFO hoax of all time? And if not, what do you think is? When the question was posed, my, my thoughts were mostly in the United States. And I was thinking of the great Scoutmaster case from Florida where the guy was burned by a landed UFO. Uh, Maury Island popped into my mind, which is treated, we treat, treat that in the book and talk about some of the things there. But the alien autopsy, given its worldwide distribution, 
That has to be number one. That has to be number one. And what is interesting, and, I'm, and I've been running a poll on my blog about this, do you, do you, what do you think of the alien autopsy? I am actually stunned people still believe that thing is real. You've got, you've got the guy who started it, Ray Santilli, telling us that the tent footage was a hoax, and people say, well, the, the rest of it's okay. We've got Philip Mantle, who's investigated this thing some, since the very beginning, saying it was a hoax, and numerous participants in it, including the production company that did it, some of the actors who you see in the film uh, saying it's a hoax, they're explaining how they did it, and yet there are people who still believe this thing is real. So, yeah, you're right. The alien autopsy has got to be the biggest hoax in UFO history. It is one of the strangest things, isn't it? Because I was at a UFO conference, um, I think about four or five years ago, and there was a guy there, he was doing some of the audiovisual stuff, and he, he pulled me aside, and he said, look, have you heard about Alternative 3? And I said, well... No. Do what, yeah. I, I said, well, well, no, no, I haven't. He said, and he, 15 minutes, I had to listen to this guy tell me about how this was, this was it. This was the big truth. This was the one. And so I went home and I did a little Googling and I checked on Alternative 3. And, you know, I realized, well, it's a hoax. It was done for television. The people who did it admitted it. You know, it was kind of a War of the Worlds thing. And yet here, and he wasn't the only one. There were still people that, and his answer, so I emailed him back and his answer when I said, look, this is what it was. He says, well, that's what they were told to do once they let the truth out. The men in black, the powers that be, the whomever came and made them concoct this cover story because they, they put the truth out. And the same thing, I hear the same thing now with the alien autopsy thing. You know, the guys who hoaxed it, admit it. They, they'll tell you how they did it. And yet you still have people like Ed Gehrman and others on UFO updates, for instance, who insist, well, okay, but if it's, it's, yeah, maybe, but it's still real, even though it's a hoax. And you I, know, this is one of the unfortunate things, Paul, that goes on. Even Jim Mosley and Gray Barker had this drunken session years ago where they write the Strafe letter, which is a letter they send to George Adamski saying that the State Department recognizes his contact claims as genuine. And, you know, we maybe expected that Adamski would adopt that as part of his story, even though it was obviously a hoax. But there's still people to this day and age who think this drunken session where they wrote these hoax letters, it was all real, that there was somebody in the State Department named R.E. Strafe. Well, and, it, you know, there's so many of these stories. There's one, it's even on the Paracast forums now, about Greg Bishop. And it, it talks to what Carl Flock called the will to believe. And he was speaking specifically about Roswell. But I, you know, I think Carl was right on that this infects all of ufology, not the serious researchers, or at least not most of them, but the subculture of ufology. There was somebody, I think it was Adam Go Rightly, posted this thing that Greg Bishop was a CIA disinformation agent, and his code name was HB44. And he posted it on Greg's birthday when Greg turned 44 years old. Now, as soon as this goes up, a couple of us had some fun with it for a few hours, and then, you know, okay. There you go. Fine. Joke's over. Happy birthday, 44. Greg. But no. It lives on. Every now and then <laughs> it pops up in a discussion forum somewhere going, did you know Greg Bishop is a disinformation agent? And they link to that post. It boggles the mind. Nothing Kevin, ever dies on the Internet. You studied psychology. Give me a bit of psychological insight into why that, that kind of phenomenon, alien autopsy, Alternative 3, Greg Bishop is a CIA agent, any of that stuff. Why does well, that go yeah. on? Your uncle has labeled me as a government agent. Uh, You're not? In, in the, 
in the review he did of a UFO crash at Roswell, and, and we had suggested there was no crash over on the plains of San Augustine, and he wrote something to the effect he would think that Randall and Schmidt were government agents attempting to direct attention away from the San Augustine where one was found alive. So, so this goes on. Uh, somebody actually said that I was, I had been working with Hector Quintanilla in Project Blue Book. For God's sake, I was in high school at the time. Uh, I wasn't working with the Air Force on that. Well, you know what? You are a really smart person. Very precocious 15-year-old. This goes without saying, but that doesn't put me into the Air Force at that age. Uh, but but, but Carl, Carl was right. There is a will to, to believe. The, the flip side of that, of course, is the will to disbelieve. There are no UFOs, therefore, or there are no extraterrestrial visitations. Therefore, yes. any sighting that suggests there is must be a hoax. So yeah. the sword cuts both ways, but it's, it, it's people who are so wrapped up in their belief structures that they cannot see the evidence on the other side. They will accept the evidence that proves their point. They will reject everything else as if it doesn't exist. And, and, and that's what we get into. So that when I say that Frank Kaufman lied about his involvement in the Roswell case, as we were able to prove once we got the documentation, there are people who still write to me and say, how do you know Kaufman wasn't a government disinformation agent? And the answer is because he's a liar. Yeah. We, we, we know the documents he produced. He forged documents. We know the, the, the lies that he told. We've got it. He said he was a master sergeant who had been trained in intelligence, and he showed his documents to prove it. And when we got a hold of the original documents, we found out he'd been a staff sergeant, and he'd been trained in administration. There was no training in intelligent work anywhere in his records. And yet people still write to me and say, well, how do you know that, that Frank Kaufman wasn't a government uh, disinformation agent, agent and doing his job? And, the, and, and, and so that goes on, and that's part, of the, that's part of the problem with UFOs. The other problem is we, we keep recycling everything every five to seven years. And so the new people coming in just find, uh, they'll find the, 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 uh, oh, the, the, the Philadelphia experiment, and they'll be convinced yeah. that's true. Even though Carlos Allende has been identified, that Carlos Allende, who, who claimed the ship was teleported, uh, admitted that he made the thing up, and, and, and his family said, the, the annotations in the book struck me as odd. Uh, it, the, Carlos Allende, and I always assume everybody knows what I'm talking about here, but Carlos Allende was this guy who had uh, uh, got a hold of a copy of the case for the UFO by Morris K. Jessup. And he underlined passages, and he wrote in it, of course, it, it looked like it was three people, and he'd sent it to the Office of Naval Research, who decided it was a load of crap and threw it away. But, but Allende did that to everything. And, and, and what cracked me up was they, his family said, yeah, he would, he would annotate birthday cards and send them back to people. And I did a story about the Allende letters in official UFO magazine, and Allende got a hold of it. Carlos, I think his real name was Carlos, Carl Allen, but he got a, 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 a hold of it, and he annotated it and sent, sent, it, sent it back. Which, so I got a copy of that, which I think is pretty funny. But people will still talk about this, this idiotic Philadelphia experiment as if it's real. There's not a shred of evidence that ever took place. Bill Moore, in his book on the Philadelphia experiment, publishes this article that was supposedly published in the newspaper, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just the one uh, column of it. There is not a single name in that newspaper article, and I, and I, and I 
and I challenge anybody to find a newspaper article where there's not a single name. It talks about the event taking place at a tavern on the city docks. The waitress said, the city police responded. Who are these people? What city police? What docks? What waitress? What bar? Not a single identifiable uh, landmark name person in that article, and yet people still believe this ship was teleported. That would be another hoax for the guy in Australia. Yes. You know, you wanted the hoaxes? Yeah. I, I've often said that you know you haven't made it as a UFO researcher or personality or whatever until you've been accused of being a government agent. So it's it's kind of like you're no longer a virgin. You're now a government agent. And I remember seeing my name for the first time linked to being a government agent. And it was somebody who had written that I, had, as a joke on my blog, posted, because Carl Flock and I used to joke about this. He was MJ0 and I was MJ13. Those were little code names we used in emails to each other. And so I posted just after Carl passed away, I think, you know, I'm sad to see MJ0 go. Um, I guess as MJ13, I'm, I'm the last guy standing. And somebody actually thought it was serious, which I'm sure Carl would have thought was funny if he was still around. Or maybe he does now wherever Carl might yeah. be. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Kevin Best. D. Randall is here. He's author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. Our co-host, Chris O'Brien, Paul Kimball. Chris, jump in with a question. You know, I've, I've always had... A a problem with uh, the whole subject of crash retrievals and there is one exception and that is an event that allegedly occurred on April 16th 1969 in the in the San Luis Valley where I investigated for many years and uh, the two witnesses uh, are very credible there were two uh, archaeologists who were doing a dig uh, near the famous cattle guard site which has some of the earliest uh, remains of humans in North America and they claim that uh, two F-4 uh, Phantoms chased a small scout ship type object f over the Sangre de Cristos uh, to the east and that they were chasing it around this 49 square mile Great Sand Dunes dune field. And uh, at one point, the object uh, was trying to to outturn the jets and uh, it supposedly clipped the top of a dune cartwheeled into the dune field and crashed. And according to Glenna Beck, I, I'm not making that name up. Uh, and no relationship that. to that other Glenn whatever. <laughs> no. I believe she was a, an archaeologist uh, from Stanford, and her husband was also an archaeologist. Uh, they were there also with their teenage son. They claimed the following day that seven 
flatbed uh, trailers or semis with flatbed trailers came out, laid down a, a some sort of like metal portable roadway over the dune field and hauled this thing away. It took uh, quite a bit of effort for them to uh, get out to the to the. Uh, place where this uh, allegedly had crashed, and then they uh, they took it away. You know, put a tarp on it and took it away. Are you familiar with this particular case, uh, Kevin? I, I know it's not that well known uh, in ufology. Uh, no, I, I'm not. And, and, and one of the things uh, a show a host of another show told me about a crash in Minnesota that took place last year. Coincidentally, on the same day that something supposedly fell into the. Uh, the river in Ottawa that uh, Chris Rukowski had helped me out with. So that that's not in the book, in in, in my book, and and neither is yours. But it's uh, an intriguing, intriguing uh, event, especially yeah, she, she, professional people involved in that. With a right, and they went on the record. They've actually they've actually done a video of full length. Of, uh, at least Glenna has the 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 wife of the couple um, has actually appeared. In front of a camera and done a full length uh, you know, interview about this. It's just one of those cases that slipped by and not, not many people know about it. Another researcher, uh, who is quite proprietary in, in nature, um, is the one that uncovered this. That's why I've never, I've always stayed away from it because I don't want him to sue me. He's one of those guys that'll sue at the drop of the hat. So, um, I have not really, uh, published, uh, my digging on this, but, uh, it, it does have, uh, it does hold water in my estimation. Of course, we do have the Levita military operations low flight training area over the Songres, uh, where these, where the object and the jets, uh, came from. So, you know, my guess is maybe it was some sort of advanced, uh, you know, pilotless drone or something, but the description is of a, of a scout ship, a small 10 to 12 foot scout ship. And at one point, um, uh, the archaeologists claimed that the thing was less than 50 feet over their head. So they got a pretty good look at it in the middle of the day. But, uh, that's when uh, April 16th, 1969, for anybody who wants to do some digging on that. So one thing I should point out here is I don't think it's a good year unless somebody's threatened to sue me at some point during it. So, <laughs> yeah. So well, you've been accused. You've been accused of being a uh, being a uh, an agent, and uh, and you've uh, probably been threatened to be sued. I have not had either of those things happen. I guess I haven't made it yet. Try working tried, in the film industry. I've tried to get Gerald Anderson to sue me a number of times because that would open up a lot of lot of documentation through uh, discovery that would. And some of the Gerald Anderson controversy. But yeah, you mentioned that at the top of the show. <laughs> I've, I've got the the phone bill that he forged. So I mean, I, that's pretty well the uh, I believe the absolute defense. I say Gerald Anderson's a liar, and here's a document he forged. That would pretty well say, well, yeah, he sort of is. And he is on the SEAL's wall of shame, by the way. He claimed to be a Navy SEAL, and they say no, he never was. The only SEAL there that I go. care about is Gosling's. And if nobody, if you guys don't know what Gosling's is, you're just drinking the wrong kind of rum. Is is all I have to say. Um, speaking of um, now, I now I'll get a bunch of angry U.S. Navy SEALs coming after me and saying, "Wait a minute, you've you've diminished and, and the those SEALs." Guys are tough. Yeah, we get. Canadian Joint Task Force, I'll just sick them on them or whatever. Um, great, that just made it worse. Speaking of disinformation agents, Kevin, real ones as opposed to fake ones like us, Bill Moore, and I'm not saying Bill is a disinformation agent or not, but seeing how we talked a bit about MJ-12 earlier and seeing how we have talked a bit about the Roswell incident and a bit about disinformation, all of which touch upon one William Moore. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about Bill Moore and your interactions with him. I know this is one of the things Greg Bishop and I disagree on, is Bill Moore's role in ufology and his relationship with AFOSI and government intel 
and also potentially his relationship with MJ-12 and the creation thereof. So perhaps you could talk a bit about Bill Moore. Maybe this will be your opportunity to get sued. I don't know. And how he related to Roswell and MJ-12 and everything that was going on in the late 70s and then through the 1980s. Take us back in time, if you will. Do I have to? Uh, yes. Yes, you okay. do. One of the, the, the things that I wanted to talk mention since you brought it up was Moore had been or had gotten involved with APRO, the Aerophenomenal Research Organization, the Lorenzans in Arizona. And I guess he was working, I, I'd say, high, highly placed in APRO, which I'm not sure what that would mean, but was in communication with him. And he, he had said in some document that uh, he was supplying the Air Force with information on ufologists through his connections with APRO, but the Air Force seemed to be getting more information than he was supplying, and he thought I was the other one supplying the information. So there's Bill Moore suggesting I'm a government agent of some kind, which of course is blatantly not true. I was not, and did not, and have not, and would not. But that's a whole other argument. Moore started, uh, after the Roswell incident book came out, uh, Moore continued his research. I know he was planning to write a book with Bob Pratt and Richard Doty. Richard Doty had been an OSI agent who had lost his certification for some reason in Europe and ended up as the senior NCO at a mess hall at Kirkland Air Force Base. Um, but they were going to do a book, and in the book there was something, MJ-12 first surfaces in this work of fiction they were going to do. Pratt was the main writer on it, and they were feeding information to him, and uh, Doty was there to, to, I guess, advise on how military functions in these, these things. Bill Moore had said, and Stan Friedman actually confirmed this to me and ain't now denies that he did, but, he, but Brad Sparks had also said the same thing to Stan, that, that Bill Moore had said that he had come up against the wall on his Roswell investigation and was thinking about creating some kind of a document that, that he could present that would allow people to talk about their involvement in the Roswell retrieval. So lo and behold, Several years later, out comes this MJ-12 document, which is sent to Jamie Chandery, a UFO researcher nobody had ever heard of until the MJ-12 paper showed up at his house on undeveloped film. They developed the film, and there's the MJ-12 document. The interesting thing about the MJ-12 document is it reflects the state of ufology in the early 1980s, but it does not reflect the truth as it would have been in 1952 or the truth as it is today. So the document is flawed by it, I guess, anachronisms for, for, from, from 1982. Moore, of course, denies he had anything to do with it, but Moore, in his investigation of it, now says that he's, he's pretty well convinced that the document is a hoax, which I think is, is funny. So we've got the, the document coming out reflecting the state of ufology in 1982, and that's the kind of the link we draw back to the Willingham case, because this is a time that Zeckel is pu pushing the Del Rio crash. Zeckel has selected the date of 6 December 1950, that's the date that shows up in the MJ-12 document, and, but it suggests the object was pretty much incinerated, which would negate Zeckel being able to do anything with it. But if Del Rio is a hoax, that kind of negates the whole document. So Moore, I think in 1989, came out and said that he had been working with the Air Force, feeding disinformation into the UFO community, and that included I think some of the stuff on cattle mutilations, he was talking about the stuff that he had said to uh, John Lear, son of Bill Lear, the guy, the, the jet guy, and some of the dark aspects of, of ufology. 
that he had said that stuff to, to Lear and Cooper and a couple of other people. He had been involved with uh, harassing Paul Benowitz, who was a scientist, researcher, inventor living in Kirtland, or in Albuquerque, who apparently had inadvertently tapped into some of the um, low-frequency radio communications that were being done. And so Moore says what, what he had done was feed some of this stuff to Benowitz, and they would sneak into his house, uh, rearrange the furniture, and do all these sorts of things to drive Benowitz mad. So, so Moore confessed to a role with Air Force OSI and being an agent of disinformation, which pretty well cut his throat in ufology. I just don't think that's true. I, I, think, I don't think he had that kind of a role that he was working for the government. I've often believed that the government... If, if there was a if there was a branch of OSI to deal with ufology, they would just sit back and let us let us run because we we do it to ourselves all the time, accusing each other of being government agents. Bill Moore creating uh, documents uh, supposedly to to uh, further his investigation, feeding information to one another, feeding bad information all over the place. If I was if I was in charge of that operation, I'd just be pointing to these things and yeah, that was my plan. See how well it worked. Uh, MJ-12 diverted ufology for 25 years now, uh, or 30 years now. So uh, with with the Bill Moore stuff, I think um, I just I, I just am not real impressed with what he said. He was one of the mainstays in uh, the Philadelphia experiment, the book with uh, Charles Berlitz. There was one in there that had had me laughing. I had written the article I wrote about the Allende letters. I did under the pen name B.R. Strong, and in the um, Allende, or in the Philadelphia experiment, there's a there's a paragraph in there that says this guy named B.R. Strong, who claims to be a close personal friend of Kevin Randall, uh, it's me, guys. So they, they got that they got that point wrong. But there's a lot of problems with the conclusions that Moore has drawn and some of the leaps of logic that he makes that I don't think are followed by the evidence he has. And then he claimed to be a government agent, uh, government disinformation agent. I just don't believe that's true either. You think we're just making it all up? Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We're not making up this. Kevin D. Randall joins us. A new book called Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. We have two co-hosts, Paul Kimball and Christopher O'Brien. And right now we're doing a little bit of disassembling of some of the things in the field that are bogus. As far as William Moore is concerned, since he made this admission, real or imagined, of being a government disinformation agent, has he been out of it pretty much? And yes. He showed up. Our good friend Larry Flint, the Hustler Magazine guy, 
had... I, um, I wish he was my good friend, but that's a different story. Well, just so, you know, if you'd loan me money, that would be nice. But he had, he put together a magazine that lasted for five or six issues and more with the editor, so... And this was after, sometime after um, the big admission in 1989. More dances in and out of the field periodically, but after 1989, he pretty well was out of the UFO field. And, and, and from what he says, and he's uh, mentioned this in Sausage Smear a couple of times, that he's pretty happy being out of the UFO field. And I can certainly understand that with the, the way the, the field operates. Since that admission at the MUFON conference in Las Vegas in 1989, they, there hasn't been a lot heard from Bill Moore. It's very odd because I suspect that if Moore had wanted to come back into ufology, you know, full scale or stay in ufology full, full scale, he would have taken a hit and a pretty big one. But eventually tempers would have calmed down. And if he had come out three or four years later with something that people wanted to hear, you would have heard people apologizing for the fact that Bill Moore, even if he wasn't a disinformation agent, certainly didn't do you know, he did some very not nice things to Paul Benowitz, participated in, I think at least, participated in the MJ-12 hoax. And we've seen that, Kevin, and I know this is going to be a painful moment for you, but... Not really. Pain, painful? Uh, well, you know where I'm going then. Don Schmidt. Absolutely. I sat on a panel at the X conference, to my lasting shame, next to Nick Pope on one side, which was a good thing, but two people down, there was Don Schmidt. I thought this was 2007, and I thought, and he was there as the Roswell expert. Whatever you think of Roswell, I'm just thinking, shouldn't that be Kevin Randall or Stan Friedman or, you know, a legitimate Roswell researcher, whether you think they're right or wrong? But no, there's Don Schmidt working with Tom Carey, releasing new books about Roswell going on the radio, and viewed as credible by a lot of people in ufology. Explain that to me, Kevin. Explain how a guy like Don Schmidt still gets uh, a a hearing, period. Well, it's, it's because, it's because and, and, and it goes back to what Paul Kimball had said, which is the will to believe. As long as you say what the people want to hear, whether you believe it or not, I guess, you're going to be a popular figure in ufology. If you take a scientific point of view, which I try to do, I'm not always successful, but I, but I try to do, you're going to find yourself on the out. I mean, everybody knows I think alien abduction is explainable in terrestrial terms. There is not this great alien conspiracy to abduct, abduct human people and experiment on them. And yet, I'm the bad guy because I say that and people don't want to hear that. If I embrace alien abduction, if I embrace crop circles, if I embrace Aztec, if I embrace this nonsensical shoot-down book where the, the Air Force and the aliens are having great gun battles over the uh, Atlantic, I would be a much more popular individual in ufology. But I sat there and thought, I don't really care to be a popular individual in the, uh, ufology. I would like to know what the truth is. So well, that's, that's the problem. And, I, and you're absolutely right. Had Bill Moore wanted to come back into the field after, after he literally committed suicide in 1989, he could have easily done it. And, and, and you see it all the time. People are caught in the most outrageous lies, exposed, and the next thing you know, they're right back on the lecture circuit. We forgive, we forgive bad people maybe too much, you know. So what happens here, this happens a lot in the show business industry. Someone is convicted of a crime, and we want to show forgiveness. We want to show that somebody can redeem themselves. 
So maybe Robert Downey Jr. spends time in jail because of his serious drug problems, whatever. He gets out, he gets treatment, and now he's the biggest actor on the planet all over again. With respect, Gene, that's a false comparison. Robert Downey Jr., um, or somebody like that, that's a personal problem, but it doesn't impact on his ability to be an actor. And, and a very good one. But when you deal with people like Don Schmidt or Bill Moore, their problems are directly related to their credibility as UFO researchers. Oh, of and course. yet they continue to get a free pass. So it's not like a, a football player who uses drugs, cocaine, recreationally. That doesn't have anything to do with him being a football player. But if he's using performance-enhancing drugs, it does. There is a difference. And Bill Moore and Don Schmidt are the equivalent of baseball players who juiced in the 1990s. They cheated. They lied. And yet Schmidt still is given a free pass by most people and more would be, I suspect, if he if he came back. And uh, and I think that's shameful. And kudos. That's why I like Kevin and people like him. Dick Hall was one of those guys. Never concerned about being popular. Um, more concerned about getting at the truth of the matter even if and willing to be wrong too well the person who comes back can also say they were the victim you know maybe william moore says i'm back because i was victimized by these evil government agents who said i was doing something positive for my country but now i've seen the way and the truth let's move on but he never did that yeah well, well maybe but don don schmidt also don schmidt was one of those accused me of being a government agent told a number I know. of people that he, he believed that i might be a government agent planted on him Imagine the irony. Yes, that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure if I can Randall this. It's full of Schmidt. Very nice. Oh, that was that was mean. I've been I've, I've been working on a stand-up routine. That was one of my jokes. Sorry. Okay, sit down. <laughs> it, was, it was funny because on that 2007 panel at the X conference, Schmidt. Uh, you know, I don't want to talk about Schmidt too much, but I find this amusing, and Kevin, you might find this amusing. He went on and on about how we need disclosure because here was Nick. Nick Pope had earlier been talking about the United Kingdom's release of, of UFO documents. And Schmidt said, we need disclosure just like the United Kingdom has done. And I turned around, I looked to him, and I said, well, the United States has had that. It was it happened when they released the Project Blue Book files decades ago. And, it, you know, his face literally turned white because, you know, the Project Blue Book file release is more or less akin to what the United Kingdom gov government has done recently with the MOD files. There, you know, there's not super top secret information in the MOD files either. So, you know, that's my Don Schmidt encounter. And I'm sure we've all had one. But they, they spin this stuff that people want to hear. And I, I think it's, the you know, the... The personality cult or narcissism, they don't care about the truth. They just want 200 people sitting in an audience to applaud when they're finished. 200 and, paying customers. Yeah, it's pathetic. There's, there's and now that guy, we've said one, that. There's one guy on the lecture circuit who was, who was convicted of child molestation. What could yes. this guy possibly say that we'd want to hear? Even, even if he was on the inside and, and knew everything, why would we believe this guy? And yet well, he, gets, he still shows up in lectures all the time. And just so folks know, and I have no problem saying his name because it's public record, Wendell Stevens, right? And so he's popular because he goes and he spouts the Billy Myers story at certain conferences. And I've been at those conferences because I find these conferences fun and amusing. And sometimes you get good speakers. I remember one. I was there. Don Ledger was speaking about Shag Harbor. So there you have a very credible man. 
and he is. Don Ledger, he's a good friend of mine. And then you have Wendell Stevens speaking about the, Millie, the Billy Meyer case. And so you go up to people and you ask them, well, you know, you realize Wendell Stevens was convicted. Of, you know, and they go, that was the government framing him. Yeah, that's the excuse. That's always the excuse. To quiet him about the Billy Meyer truth. So, you know, well, there you, what can you do? There are never guilty parties. I'm going to say here for the first time then, so we can spread the rumor. Nice. The reason I ended up in Iraq was I was getting too close to the answers on Roswell, and the only way the government could stop me was to call me back into the service and send me to Iraq. Hoping you wouldn't return? (laughs) Hoping I wouldn't return. (sighs) You heard it first on the PowerCast, ladies and gentlemen. Write this down, but don't believe a word of it. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We do believe that we have one more segment to spend with Kevin Randall, author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, Twin Co-Hosts, Far Away, but Certainly Top-Notch People. We need the best for Kevin, Paul Kimball, and Christopher O'Brien. Now, one of the things, of course, we always have to tackle when we talk about crashes and retrievals is where is this stuff going? Is there a Warehouse 13, (laughs) Area 51? If we've recovered anything, is it still there? Can we believe it? Can we find it? Warehouse 13, huh? You've been watching the Sci-Fi Channel. (laughs) I just wanted you to know that I was aware of the reference. In talking to the witnesses at Roswell, we can pretty well trace the stuff to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. General Exxon, who was a lieutenant colonel at the base at the time, later became uh, a brigadier general and was the base commander at Wright, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, said that the bodies, one of them had been sent to Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, because at the time, 1947, Lowry had the military mortuary service. So they, were, they sent a body there to find out the best ways to preserve it. I have heard that um, one of the bodies had been sent to one of the big bases in Florida. I forget the name at the moment, but it had a big aerospace medical facility there for, for similar types of research. When we can trace the material out of Roswell, we trace it to uh, Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And this is based on the um, testimonies of, of, of some of the people who were involved in it. Now, some of, some of the stuff went to Fort Worth first, Fort Worth being the headquarters 
for the 509th Bomb Group or the 8th Air Force Headquarters, the parent unit to the, to the 509th. We have also heard, and this is, this is speculative, it's rumor, um, but it's really kind of neat that the, that the Navy had a base in the Pacific. They owned the entire island, and they put the stuff, all the stuff there because you had to be in the Navy to get there. You couldn't be a civilian and just show up at the front gate type thing. You, you had to be in the Navy to get there. I, I, I couldn't tell you what the island is. I couldn't tell you where it was. It was just something that we've heard. So once the material is retrieved, we, the information I have gets it to, to, to Ohio. Would it be at Area 51? I've always thought Area 51 was the location where we're working on the next generation of military aircraft or uh, UAVs or whatever there. It's not really involved in any kind of alien research, but it's, it, it's involved in top secret research to advance our technologies. So that's, that's the best I can tell you is these are, this is what I've heard. We've got people who, who were right field that said, yeah, it came here. We saw some of it. We were involved in some of it. We've got people at Roswell said it was sent there, but, but that's about as far as we, I can go with it. Okay, but that, of course, is years and years ago. So today in 2010, where would it be, would there even be evidence today of advanced technology as a result of that? I am excluding Colonel Corso's book here. You mean Lieutenant Colonel Corso's book? Yes. I've... My speculation has always been that, that the Air Force, and the Air Force isn't this clever, would have left it at Wright-Patterson, because everybody would assume that since Wright-Patterson has been outed, they would have moved it out of there, and the clever move was, would be to leave it there. I, I just don't know where they would have taken it, what basis. There's the Dugway Proving Grounds in, in Utah, which is a highly classified um, research center, and that's, that's the place where they inadvertently released some kind of a toxic substance into the atmosphere and killed off a bunch of, bunch of sheep and a couple of, uh, couple of the ranchers back in the 60s or 70s, I think. So Dugway, Dugway's a possibility as a, as a highly classified area. Um, area 51, sure, why not? Uh, I just, I just really don't know. So I'm, I'm kind of at a loss of it, it, where the stuff would be in today's environment. What I do know is that if you, if you retrieved the bodies of an alien uh, creature, you do not destroy it because you may not never, you may never get another one. So you want to keep these unique biological samples available for research. And I would assume that as our technology improves, we imply, apply that technology to either investigating the makeup of the alien creatures or the technology that they brought with them so that we could understand what they were going on. And I think in today's world, we would have a better chance of understanding that technology than we would have in 1947. If you look at some of the things, if we took back to 1947, they'd have no way of understanding. If I took them a DVD back there, they'd have no way of understanding that there's all kinds of information on that DVD. They'd, all they'd see is kind of a silvery disc. Uh, they wouldn't understand what, what it is, what it contained, or how to retrieve the information. Okay, but how do you keep it secret for six decades? Can we really do that? Yeah. We assume the government, well, yeah, we are getting eyewitness stories. I saw this, I saw that, I heard this. But we don't have anything to really put our fingers on. It's still second, third parties, really. No, it's, we've got first-hand people who are involved in this talking about it, and, and people who are credible, people who 
Well, I'm saying that firsthand. I mean someone sitting there in the laboratory dissecting the aliens, sitting there in an engineering room trying to poke into but, but, the integrated circuits and all that but, stuff. But Len Stringfield, in, in a number of his crash retrieval books, talked about people that, who told him that very thing, that they were involved with the autopsy, the, the, the study of the alien creatures. So Len talked about some of those people. That information is in Len's file. We don't have access to Len's files right now, but that information is there. So some of what you suggest is around. So a few cracks here and there. There is information getting out. But certainly for the government to keep a secret for this long, we're going through multiple administrations. We're going through lots of changes of command. So is there one singular agency that might have managed all this for so many well, years? Let's let's look at let's look at Operation Solo. This was this was a multi-decade FBI investigation of the FBI had a man in the Kremlin is what it boils down to. A guy named Morris Childs had been a communist in the 1930s, became dissatisfied with him, but but the FBI kept him in in the Communist Party, and he became a very high official, and he would be sent. Uh, he would be invited to Moscow. He would be uh, treated to all kinds of information in Moscow, which he, of course, would then return to the FBI. The point simply is, Childs began his operations in the 1950s or the 1940s, so, and, and, he, and he ended in, in the 1980s, I think, when he finally retired. The only president that knew Childs existed was Gerald Ford, and the only reason he knew is because Ford was going to meet with the Soviet leadership, and he was very nervous about this meeting. And so he was told about Morris Childs and what the FBI had learned from him. The guys working in the FBI office in New York City, except for the two or three people who directly worked with Childs, none of them knew what was going on. All of this came out in a book called Operation Solo, which is a fascinating read about how they kept this secret from everybody. When Kennedy backed down the Soviets, Childs had told people that the Soviets would not risk war because they were afraid of the uh, uh, atomic capabilities of the United States. So that when Kennedy backed down the Soviets, it, was, it wasn't the big bluff or the big gamble that a lot of people thought it was. Kennedy was operating with intelligence that had been gathered by Morris Childs from the Soviets during his visit to Moscow. And so the fact that the point simply is, A, there can be horrendous secrets that people keep. They can be known to people across the spectrum, and, it's, and the information just simply is not leaked into the public arena until Operation Solo ended. Uh, I think Child died 15 or 20 years ago. But that operation continued on. And one of the interesting things is when Kennedy was assassinated, Childs happened to be in Moscow at the time, and he was in one of the meeting with the leadership of the, of the Soviet Union when somebody came in and told him Kennedy was assassinated. And the, the Soviets didn't know that Childs could speak Russian. It was one of the things he kept from them. And they were discussing in Russian, boy, I hope the Americans don't think we had anything to do with that, which would suggest there was no Soviet involvement in the assassination of Kennedy. So anyway, if you get a chance, read the book Operation Solo, and it'll kind of give you a feeling for how some secrets can be kept. Okay, we can keep the secrets now. So does that mean that all these people crying for disclosure, disclosure, starting with Major Donald Kehoe, continuing to the present day, there is something to disclose and some way we can possibly get this information, or is that impossible? 
don't think there's any way that we can force disclosure. I think the closest we came was in the mid-1990s as we were talking about Roswell and got a lot of people talking about Roswell because there was no reason for the Air Force to investigate the Roswell case again in, in, 19, in the 1990s. What they should have said, there's nothing to it. Screw it. You know, we're going to do nothing to it. it. It was a mistake for them to investigate it all. And so... I think that the disclosure project is going about this completely wrong, especially because they don't vet their witness. So we end up with people telling telling wild tales that are clearly, clearly not true. Uh, Chris Stone talking about 57 varieties of aliens. What is he channeling? Um, what's his face? Heinz ketchup, actually. Heinz ketchup. Right. Of course, it's the Heinz ketchup theory. Remember, remember uh, the, the McCarthy who was talking about 57 communists in the in the. Uh, State Department, and, the, and it came from Pitt Hines' 57 varieties, and now we got, we got, we got Cliff Stone talking about 57 varieties of aliens. They don't vet these guys, and all they do is make the job that much harder, but it's not going to come through that. It's going to come. Disclosure is going to happen in a different arena, in a different way. Well, then, we're speculating here. So how will it happen? <laughs> you open the question. You open the door. Let's walk through it, Kevin. Well, the, the, the best example is the, 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 the aliens land and say, here we are. Now deny it. Uh, There'd be no way to do it. Uh, something happens where it is in the best interest of the government to say, yes, the aliens are here. But, but it's not going to be forced from the outside by us uh, presenting people at the, at the National Press Club talking about things that are not true, uh, things that are easily proven to be inaccurate, to be, to be polite about the whole thing. And, well, I guess I'll never be invited to the XCon now. Think of all that lecture money you're not receiving, Kevin. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll just stay here in my house and look out the window. That might be more fun. It's about alien invasion. Well, even if the government did disclose uh, everything that they supposedly knew, how could you believe uh, them after 60 years of being lied to? It, it, to me, it's just it just doesn't make any sense uh, that anyone thinks that we're going to get anywhere with a, a disclosure process. Uh, that, that's a very good point. And, I mean, can we, prove to, can we point to any th other things that the government has lied to us about? You know, I mean, well, the government has always been honest about, oh, I don't know, our involvement with the Vietnam War, um, the uh, experiments in Alabama on syphilis. Um, there's another way of looking at disclosure, fellas, and it's sort of the point I made to Don Schmidt on that panel in 2007 when he was talking about this kind of disclosure. And I was talking about, look, I'm convinced the government doesn't have a clue. And I know, Kevin, this is where you and I might differ. So the disclosure that you would look for is what has happened with the Ministry of Defense. There's been a disclosure of Canadian investigative documents over the years, Project Blue Book files, the stuff that they investigated, the case files that are there, and then let private citizens go and go through those and see if they can find things that maybe the Air Force or the Navy or whomever investigated it did not. But I honestly don't think, I do not rule, in fact, I actually believe the ET explanation is far and away the best paranormal investigation available, i.e. the non-terrestrial ones. But I also don't think that the government knows very much more about the nature of the UFO phenomenon than we do. Well, then, but Paul, the you'd be saying there, Paul, that you don't believe they have the crash disks on hand. No. And I think, well, you know, Kevin and I are friends, but he knows that we politely and respectfully disagree on that. I keep an open mind. If somebody could prove to me, to my satisfaction, which I think maybe my standards 
is a bit higher, I would have to see the crashed alien spacecraft, frankly. I think Sagan was right. Extraordinary claims like that require extraordinary proof. And in this case, if you're talking about a crashed spacecraft from another world, I think the extraordinary proof can't be witness testimony. You know, you have to have physical evidence. And you have to be able to examine that physical evidence or an alien body, one or the other. And I, th- well, that's physical evidence. And I think that's what it would take to finally prove that we are being visited by extraterrestrials and they've crashed here. But you can still say that we've been visited by extraterrestrials and not go the crash route. You can say, look, the UFOs are up there. They may well be extraterrestrials, but we just have no evidence, conclusive evidence that any of them have crashed. And so that's sort of my position, pro-ETH to a point, as far as the theory goes. But when it comes to the crash stuff, and I think maybe part of the problem is there's just so many bad hoaxes and stories with crashes, Aztec, all of that stuff, that at some point, you know, it's like a tainted witness pool. And I know people say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I would just say, look, when you've got so much crap, it's hard sifting through it, and I'm not sure there's a real point sifting through it. I think... The better cases are cases like RB-47 or the Kelly Johnson sighting. Those are the cases that indicate there's a real reality to the UFO phenomenon worth studying scientifically. And so I know, Kevin, you know that I disagree with you. I think the crash stuff has weighted down ufology for 30 years now and distracted it from looking at some of those, what I would consider to be better cases. That's you my can agree or disagree, guys. And well, that's we'd like. If, if I was going to promote my book... Please, on your please, phone. please. In fact, this is the time I was going to ask you, Kevin. We have I a would, few minutes left. Say, Shamelessly I, promote the book. I would say that that in the book there are there are two crash cases that came out of the Project Blue Book files that are not uh, talked about in in the uh, in the in the UFO field. So here's here's a couple of things where you can take a look at Air Force investigation of UFO crashes that were in the Project Blue Book files, which is kind of interesting. And, and, and the other thing I wanted to say in, in that similar vein was there's a case which does not relate to UFO crashes, but it was a woman who claimed to have been paced by a UFO back in, I think, 1954. And it sounds to me like the precursor to the abduction phenomenon. In other words, this is the Barney, Barney and Betty Hill case, except a woman didn't undergo hypnotic regression to draw out the... Uh, the alien abduction part of it. So there's there's just some very interesting stuff in the Project Blue Book files, but you have to read the damn cases. You can't just look at the interesting, the, the, the parts that you find interesting and let everything else go. You've got to go through the, the case files completely to see what, uh, what may be hidden in there. You have to go beyond the summaries. Absolutely. And most of the, a lot of those cases, I'm not sure how much of them are available, but most of them I think are now available online. You can actually read, take a look at the files. And I can go into my, in, into my library and read them on microfilm because I have the complete run on microfilm. Yeah, it's one of those things. Again, the book is called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. Kevin D. Randall, where do we find more of the stuff that you write about? You could look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, which is my blog. And if you didn't know how to spell Randall, which is R-E-N-D-L-E, you could type in a different perspective UFO, and that should bring it up on your uh, on your search engine right away, and you just click on that and see where we are. We've got a. I'm running a poll right now on coincidentally on who believes in the alien autopsy film, and I can't believe two people so far have actually said they thought the whole thing was real. 
Maybe they were the ones who made it all up. Chris O'Brien, where do we find more of your stuff? Uh, I have a website. Uh, it's Our Strange Planet. We do live on a strange planet, and it does belong to all of us. So go to Our Strange Planet. My entire database from my years of uh, investigative work in the San Luis Valley is available there. And uh, it's free to join, get access to some of the hidden files. Paul Kimball, where do we find you? Well, I would say you could find me at the MJ12 monthly meetings, but none of you are invited, except Kevin. And, Kevin, we've been missing you lately, so you should really come... Yeah, you should really come to the next one. Uh, there's a lot of stuff cooking. And the Paracast forums, I sort of uh, frequent there. And, oh, one last thing, Kevin, a guy, Jill Fernandez, who uh, posts on your blog, he leaves comments. He says, say hello from a French skeptic about the Roswell case to Kevin Randall. So, so there you Jill go. has said, from France, Jill has said hello. Or as Dan Aykroyd used to say on Saturday Night Live, France. He's not invited to the MJ-12 meetings either, though. Paul Kimball, Chris O'Brien, Kevin Randall, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you. Thanks, Gene. Yeah, thank you, Gene. The Paracast is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.